Hey friends, welcome to the Rhythms for Life podcast, where each week we talk about four rhythms that help you reduce stress and anxiety and take charge of your emotional health. Rest, restore, connect, create. Welcome back. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Gabe. And we are so glad you've joined us today for this episode. We're going to get into all kinds of great and practical things about our families, about rhythms, about what that means. First, I just want to thank our sponsor, AIM, for the Say Yes series we're in the middle of. And today we're talking to Jefferson Bethke, who is so much fun, been a good friend for a long time, but somebody who has so many insights into what does it mean for us to be intentional about rhythm in our families. Yeah. So his book, Take Back Your Family, we're going to dig into today. But first, we're going to talk about what makes a family strong. It is when the parents are solid and yeah. the parents are operating in rhythm. And we, I talk about that a lot in the connect rhythm of just loving the one you're with and that marriage intensive. And so this is why Gabe and I care so much about starting with marriage as a focal point, the center of establishing a healthy family. And right. so you can't take your family back if you haven't taken your marriage back. And so we know a lot of people have struggled in marriage this last year and a half, partly because we're all on top of each other for a long season of just like not getting outside. And then when we did like some of those things that didn't surface before because we were busy began to surface. And while Gabe and I are walking that journey in our own health and and nourishing our own hearts through counseling and just having honest conversations, we want to make sure that we foster that in you. And that's part of why we've created retreat settings. These are so important for us to have space to get away from the busyness of life, all the demands, turn off the phone, and get into our own health. And so we'll be at Lost Valley in the, in the next couple of weeks for that retreat. It's going to be great. Can't wait to do that with so many different couples. But coming up on November 18 and 19, we'll be back together in Franklin where you can come as a couple, you can come as an individual, come with friends. But we're going to spend two days investing in your own mental health, your emotional health, your spiritual health. We have Dr. Kurt Thompson, who will be with us. He's done two episodes with us. You could go back and watch those or look at those in our show notes. But he is probably one of the premier Christian psychiatrists who knows how to blend how our faith impacts our minds, how it impacts our emotions, how we relate to one another in community. And I think, Rebecca, to your point, if we're not in the best of places emotionally, it starts to impact everything else around us. And Mm -hmm. that starts with me individually, Mm -hmm. and it starts with you. But then together as a couple, bringing that together starts to create an emotional health environment that now everything around us can thrive. Yeah, when our emotional health suffers, we tend to kind of look outward and we need something or someone to blame. And then what that does is it creates the people who are around us who love us the most. They somehow become the enemy. Right. And that's really not the real enemy as we know. Like the real enemy is the enemy that wants to steal, kill and destroy our health, our vitality, our flourishing, our calling, our purpose. And so this emotional healthy retreat, the reason why I'm so passionate about it as you know after 11 years of advocating for us to be as healthy as we possibly can, we know that that requires deliberate intention. It requires deliberate investment. And so we, on our end, want to make these things available to you because sometimes we don't know where to go for a counselor, perhaps, or you don't haven't found one in your city yet. But if you want this two-day intensive and you really want to reset, and I've talked to so many who are like, I need this. It's time. It's time. And it, sometimes it's just deciding, like, I'm going to 
take that day off work. I'm going to come to Franklin. I'm going to get around a table with 100 people who really care about this and ask the hard questions because I want to walk into 22, 2022 different um, than I left 21. Like I really want... And here's the thing, you'll get what you put into it. It's like it's like everything in life. You will get the return that you're willing to invest. And so that's why we're so excited about this retreat. Yeah, so consider joining us. You can learn more about it at RebeccaLyons.com slash EH retreat. And you can see Pete Richardson's gonna be joining us for part of that, talking about our vocations and how to approach those in a healthy way with Dr. Kurt Thompson. Two days in Franklin last year was amazing, beautiful weather. People enjoying the farmer's market, enjoying getting out on the streets, enjoying just this fun environment, but also going deep with one another as we head into these conversations that are so important before the holidays. So join us, RebeccaLines.com slash EH Retreat. And now we're excited to welcome Jefferson Bethke, author of Take Back Your Family from the Tyrants of Burnout, Busyness, Individualism, and the Nuclear Ideal. Over the years, you've heard us talk about the beautiful nation of Rwanda, our trips there, and our partnership with an organization called Africa New Life, which helps young people attend school and break the cycle of poverty there. Today, I want to tell you the story of one of those young people, Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre grew up in Kigali, Rwanda with his parents and four siblings. When he was eight years old, his father passed away. Jean-Pierre's brother dropped out of school to help support the family, but school fees were still out of reach. That's when Jean-Pierre got sponsored through Africa New Life. He says this, that was the starting point for my dream to become a reality. I think I would have been on the streets if I had never gotten a sponsor. Today, Jean-Pierre holds a bachelor's degree and works with other young students in the same situation he used to be in. He says, sponsorship transforms your life. Today, you can transform the life of a student leader in Rwanda through educational sponsorship. For just $39 a month, you can give the gift of education and hope to a young person who has been waiting their entire life. If you're ready to make that difference today, go to africanewlife.org forward slash RFL podcast and see the students who are waiting for sponsorship. It will not only change their life, it will also change yours. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how are you guys doing? We are doing great, man, and it's so fun to be talking with you about all the things because you're involved in so much with your wife, Alyssa, and we just love you guys. I think so many people have just appreciated the way that you've cared for both your your family, you've cared for your convictions, you've been somebody who's been willing to talk about so many important ideas to your generation. You, you kind of came out early as a young millennial that was speaking a lot of truth in your generation, and that just continues to happen. I know, you're bold. Well, I appreciate that. It sounds weird to call me a millennial, too, but I, I like sorry. it. We're yeah, because you're old no, no, now. we're getting old. I don't know, we're getting old. <laughs> when you're writing books on family, that shows that you are getting old. No. <laughs> Older yes. and wiser. Well, uh, we, hopefully. We loved so much time with you guys this summer and watching you as parents. We were in Hawaii, and we got to share a meal and just watch you interact with your kids, and you are the real deal. You are living what you're preaching. It is so evident how passionate you are as a father, and Alyssa is just a rock star mama. And just to see even the sacrifices you've made intentionally in rhythms and what you're saying yes to and no to and and just inviting your kids into all of it, it was so fun a few years down the road from where you guys are to see your intentionality even now, even leading to now, to where you're writing about family and family teams and all the things that you've created is you're really, 
you're doing what you exactly you're preaching, taking back our families. And so we're excited about today. You want to jump in on kind of maybe the catalytic moment that made you decide like this idea, this message of taking back, was there a moment where you're like, something's got to give, something's got to change? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. At some level, it was almost like a cascading catalytic moment through a mentor of mine who had a similar moment, you know, maybe 10, 15 years before me that we kind of had the same epiphany. And then um, it kind of went from there. But essentially, yeah, uh, spending time with this couple, they're really close friends of ours, mentors of ours have blessed our marriage and our family. They're the people we call in emergencies, marital, spiritual, et cetera. You know what I mean? Um, everyone should have those people, by the way. And uh, what was it? Nine, nine, 10 years ago now. So, you know, we're young 20s. Um, we're married or just got married, but no kids yet. But already we were starting to feel that, like um, that fraying around the edges. I, I started to have this, this idea in my head where I started to realize everything that the West tells you you need to do in kind of the, the life stages, right? Of go to college, then get a job, then get married, then get a family, then buy a house, kind of these ducks that you're supposed to get in a row. I started to realize, man, each each adding of one of those ducks is actually making my life more like more difficult, <laughs> like <laughs> like worse. Like like I'm I'm burning, like it's actually making it more complex and, and more burnout and more anxiety and more, you know, all these different types of things that I think resonate with so many people. And and so then I kind of just step back and ask the question, like, well, why? Aren't these the things we're supposed that are supposed to bring blessing and goodness and flourishing, not you know, burnout, depression, anxiety, et cetera? Kind of this this treadmill that that we get put on essentially, I think leads us there because it's out of the wrong framework. And so that was kind of that problem, you know, that, that pain point that started me into this kind of this hunt and essentially, yeah. And then, then kind of was just asking questions from a ton of people and a, to a ton of people. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get into too much, but that's what I talk about in the book is the things like the industrial revolution, um, you know, the post-war boom, 1940s and 1950s, et cetera. What that did is that really just like cut the home at, you know, off at its knees, took all of the powerful vocational identity, economic identity, aspirational, spiritual identity, and just put them other places. So now the home is almost like a like a a, um, a hollow a hollow shell. Just just with these where where I think even David Brooks talks about this. Where essentially we all just kind of play caricatures now. We're not actually like like a mother you know from 200 years ago was this robust kind of COO over this 25 person organism that operated on her family. Yeah, I mean I mean on her property. And now you know what I mean. Mothers and fathers we get we get kind of pulled into our caricatures, which is way more smaller. Um, and that's because all these things have been pulled out. So I don't want to go into it too much, but yeah, that was essentially it. And, and so it's, it's been a 10 year journey for us of trying to say, okay, how do we, how do we parse out what is good? What is bad? How do we kind of do something different? And that brought us back to the scriptures and, and a better vision. Yeah. I love that you've brought up the historical aspect of this because so many of us are just living in the 21st century. We think this is normal. We think the way we're living, we keep moving towards progress, right? And that's not necessarily true. We could be regressing. And I think that's part of what you're hoping to remind us of is maybe this isn't the best way to live. Maybe we've taken on some assumptions about what life's about that are not leading us to the best places. And even the subtitle of your new book, Take Back Your Family, you say you're, you want to rescue the family from the tyrants of burnout, busyness, individualism, and the nuclear ideal. So talk a little bit about why we keep going in this pattern, even after realizing it's not producing the kind of fruit in our life that we want. Mm, mm, that's a really good question. I think there's a lot of reasons. I think there's a lot of things. Um, I, I think, you know, that's just group think at its finest where, you know what I mean? It's, it's, and I, I use this metaphor in the book, like you can float down a river, you know what I mean? With no 
you know, active activity from yourself. You just, yeah. you just like, you can even yeah. fall asleep. <laughs> like you can just fall asleep and yeah, you'll just drift all the way down. But to actually go upstream, you have to get out of the tube, actively engage your brain, your feet, your arms, your mental maps, et cetera, to like go a different direction against the momentum. And so I think that's really honestly the main part is there's been so many historical shifts. And I talk about three or four of them, big ones in the book. Um, and I alluded to two of them a second ago that, um, that, that is, makes it a massive stream to walk back up in. But then I hopefully give a lot of encouragement of like, Hey, the good news about this is this vision of family is actually older, more common and more spread across societies and historical precedent than how we do family right now. So I kind of invert that idea of like, Hey, how, how we do family in the West is kind of weird, super new and really modern. And it's like experimental. And so I think that alone kind of unlocks it for people a little bit of that first step of like, Oh, I I'm not super weird by doing family, by wanting to do family intentionally, you know, integrated act as a team, not just a bunch of individuals individuals, you know, searching for self-actualization. Um, but this is actually how it's always been. And then you inform that with the scriptures and it's even more powerful. And so, yeah, I think that's what I usually say. It's just, it's a difficult, you kind of have to wake up, get off the tube and go upstream. So that's difficult, you know? Right. And what that requires is you not to be self-centered or individualistic, right? Somehow we just idolized the nuclear family, you know, and if you, if you had to move across country for a job and you left, you left the multicultural, you left the kind of the heritage that's gone before you and you're not near your parents or able to care for them or your kids, you send them off to college. Like Gabe and I are still feeling the angst of that. We're kind of like, wait a minute. Sometimes you, you've worked so hard to build something and then everyone disperses. And yet it's, I think what you're painting a picture here of is part of, part of the journey of rebuilding family is doing it not alone. Because when, if Gabe and I are the only ones who are speaking into our kids' lives, right, or we're the, we're the ones discipling them or trying to train them to launch, it's going to be short-sighted. They're not going to get that household of faith experience of, like, there's a lot of voices that are speaking life over them and are training them and teaching them and giving them concepts and nuance. And so you make these intentional decisions to go, yes, it's about our kids and, and launching them, but like, who are all the people we're going to do this with, the village and the, the community that we're going to raise families in? How does that, how does that um, help draw people back to something like that? Getting away from like, our family looks like this, but like collectively, how do we get back to that way of thinking? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And I, I, I love how, how you, you worded it. I think you're totally right. I'll, I'll give two ideas that I talk about in the book that I think um, are really helpful because yeah, we are so, you know, kind of, we've created our own problems, right. Where, you know, and, and there's economists talk about this all the time with specifically that post-World War II boom, where we became so like, that was actually when the nuclear family was created, by the way, it was like 1945. It's very easy to track, very easy to pay attention to and find. And it's because we got so rich everyone like that, that's the creation of the middle class, right? was that era um, that we know that literally for one of the first times in human history, we didn't need anyone else except like two parents and two kids. That was like, that wasn't actually possible, you know, uh, for generations before you had to link yourself to a generational team or else you would die. <laughs> it was just as simple as that. Right. I mean, again, that's the, the joke we made off you know, camera, the Oregon trail thing. I think I, I gives me images of Oregon trail, right? Like that's what that you, you, it just wasn't even possible. You know, it wasn't even possible till maybe industrialization 1800s. And then certainly was the norm, you know, around 1930 to 1950. And so that first of all is like, that's, that's fascinating that like we, the only reason, so we kind of created our own problem because now 
for the first time in history, we can move across the country for a job because we have enough resources to do it. And economists also talk about how then, you know, the U.S. and our GDP stagnate in like the 90s, right? And now a lot of people and millennials, he basically says, are now left out in the cold. So we're we're 60 years down this thing now where every now job stagnation, economic stagnation, et cetera, people are no longer connected to their family, no longer living in places that have legacy, et cetera. And a lot of people actually can't do it anymore. So it's like a weird, we kind of created a 70-year problem. But to directly answer your question, I'd say two things. I'd say one, put put the people above you in generations, whether that's your parents, your grandparents, put them in the seat of honor. That's the, so, so many times we, we, we have such a tough time with in-laws or grandparents, whatever, because we tend to go to a different layer or level of like, well, I parent different or this, whatever, right? We kind of have all this angst about those relationships when it's, it's just put that all to the side literally like who cares for a minute unless they're just absolutely toxic and you need to just escape from them. Then that's, you know, you have permission to do so. But 95% of people, maybe they just disagree with their parents or have trouble, whatever, but put that to the side and just put them on the seat of honor. Like there's no pressure there. And what I mean by that is like the best way to, we, we talk about that in the book is just ask them to tell you stories every time they're over. That's the most simple exercise. That is also one of the most profound exercises in relationally uh, connecting and gluing a family together where, so by the way, the grandparents, again, that's always been their role in tribal cultures in society's past. But now all of a sudden we have Google, so we don't need grandparents. They actually used to be the wisdom gatekeepers. Like you didn't know how to operate in life without the chief elder, like passing on his 50 year wisdom. Um, and so they're, so they're going through a crisis in our culture, by the way. So give them grace of like, they're, they're not needed in our culture. You know, I mean, they are, but I'm saying our culture is saying they're not needed, which is sad, detrimental, um, and there's loneliness epidemics among senior citizens, et cetera. So put them on the seat of honor and just ask them a ton of questions. We even cheat. There's this book on Amazon. I think it's called Grandfather's Journal and Grandmother's Journal. And it has like literally a thousand questions in it where you can actually take notes and we'll take notes sometimes. Sometimes we'll just use it for prompts. And they're just random from dead serious. Do you know what I mean? Like what's the biggest failure you've gone through and how you've learned from it to like, you know, what was a, a Christmas present you remember from your 10 year old Christmas or 10 year old birthday party, whatever. And you ask, it's crazy. Like we just asked, so we rhythmically do that where every Friday night for our family dinner, we ask three or four of those questions to Alyssa's parents because they live by us um, and come over on Friday nights. And it's crazy. You know, what's crazy too is how many times Alyssa in their answers will say, I never knew that. Like, you know, like we, we don't extract stories in our, in our, in our generations. We don't do it. We don't connect the dots. We don't extract stories. We're not good storytellers. And the kids love it. I mean, I, I remember sitting around listening to my grandmother tell these stories of a time had long gone, but it was just always the most fun thing. I just remember those long afternoons on a Christmas afternoon or something and hearing those stories and now even watching my kids listen to my parents. I know. And we got your your mom and dad telling their story of how they met and how they their first date and, and he had just learning. come back from <laughs> from war essentially and like and it just the whole story and the kids were like a captive audience it was like their jaw was dropping to the ground i'm like and then they started laughing at each other like remembering some of those moments it just brought so much life like to the conversation i was like okay we're going to do this a lot because it's it is like if you don't tell those stories and hear them how are you going to pass that down like how will you really know and remember the legacy mm. Well, and one thing too, even with what you guys are talking about is, so go back to that, that, that gatekeeper idea, right? If you think about how powerful a grant, the oldest generation alive in your family is, right? Let's say it's your grandparents or your parents or whatever, but like their sixties to nineties right now. Um, let's say it's grandparents. So like they're in their eighties, right? In general, 
that person can, that's the only generation alive in your family that can span six generations. Like realize how powerful that is, right? Like they, they can remember when they were a child. So they have stories for 80 years of like the three streams above them, the three generations above them, their parents, their grandparents, maybe their great grandparents, right? And then now them being grandparents, they have three generations down themselves, the parents and the kids. And so it's like, that's a massive like relational equity tool that so many people in the West are going to their grave with it untapped, right? It's, it's one of the most powerful assets a family can have is, is storytelling and wisdom and teaching through the concept of the table and story. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's the main answer. I would say to that question of how do you how do you start integrating generations again? Did you know you can take part in the Great Commission simply by packing Operation Christmas Child shoebox gifts? There are still places around the world where the name of Jesus has never been heard, and that's why Operation Christmas Child is sending the gospel through simple shoebox gifts to the ends of the earth, sharing the love of God with millions of children each year. I love this ministry so much. The Greatest Journey Follow-Up Discipleship Program teaches children to put their faith in Christ and to share that faith with others. And as a result, unreached people groups are being reached. Thousands of churches are being planted every year and entire communities are being transformed. And you know how we feel here at Rhythms for Life about transformation. So mark it on your calendars. National Collection Week is November 15th through 22nd. That's November 15 through 22. To learn more about this global evangelism and discipleship movement or to build a shoebox online, visit samaritanspurse.org/occ. Again, that's samaritanspurse.org/occ. You describe in your book so much about the concept of teams and what that looks like for the family to see themselves as a team. But the other thing, you know, of course, with the Rhythms for Life podcast that you talk about is rhythms and rest and and what that looks like for a family. And I'd love to spend some time here taking in like your best thoughts on how families can do this together. Because we talk a lot about rhythms and a lot of adults listen to this and they're thinking through their own pattern for how they're going to do self-care and build rhythms into their life. But sometimes the kids get left out of that journey. So what does it look like in your view of how important rhythms are and rest in the family? I think, um, yeah, I would consider rhythms like the superpower of a strong family. Most families who have a lot of health and are flourishing tend to, whether they have language for it or not, are tending to live in a pretty consistent rhythm or they're using rhythm to their advantage. And specifically the weekly cadence, right? I think, I think the seven day calendar, um, in a sacred biblical model. So whether it's six days, you know, six days of work, one day of rest, which we align with, um, I think is, is so powerful. And so I'll I'll even start there. Like when you have one day of rest, when you rest one day and, and, and I don't mean veg out, you guys know this and, you know, eat potato chips, watch a football game. If that's what it needs to be that day, that's fine. But in general, the Sabbath, especially in Genesis was like this day of delight and this invitation of God to fill the earth with his presence. So it's kind of more of like a holiday. Think about it like more of a holiday than like a vegetable day. Um, and so like how, what would it, what would it look like to have, like the question I'm always asking Alyssa is what would it look like to have 52 mini Christmases a year? That's what we want our Sabbath to be, right? We want it to have that same kind of emotional tone. We want it to have that same celebration tone. We want it to have, um, kind of the, um, like icons and rituals with it, just like Christmas does. Now, of course, not as intense because Christmas is once a year, so you can go all out then. But just like that special holiday feel, like it's fun, it's celebrate, celebratory. And so living into a day of work and rest, 
is, is really, really important. And then I think that's um, really, really key. And then after that, what, what people don't realize is when you truly live into God's vision of rest, it has a cascading effect on the days before and the days after. Because so many of us, like another way to put it is, I think a lot of people, if we don't realize most of us would go crazy if every single day is the same. And we'd also go crazy if every single day was the, it was different. And so God's design of the seven day calendar is this beautiful center of neither of those. That's a consistent same cadence with like a stopping at the end of the week that changes and kind of like, you know what I mean? Like stops the energy, changes the energy and then recapitulates it for the next week. And so I think that's super, super important. And so, yeah, when you Sabbath on a certain day a week, then it changes your day before and it changes your day after. Okay, I'm still back to Christmas once a week. I am I you 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 had me at Christmas 52 times a year. I love that. And and then I have a little bit of like stress cuz then I'm like who who is making the cinnamon rolls, right? Cuz do you help like I mean, what is the father's role? I'm just curious and because I think a lot of women and men listen to this podcast, but they're going, how do both parents take an active role in the celebratory nature of Sabbath? Like, how do you share that load with Alyssa? What does that look like in very practical ways? That's a good question. I think, yeah. So, and again, I think every, you want to, you want to work at it backwards with how do we make this the most life-giving day? Right. And so, cause I agree, like the, the, you know, we, we have over, we've been practicing Sabbath for seven years now, whatever, eight years. And so we have built up to it being pretty, a kind of a little bit of a, you know, shebang every Friday night. But before it was like, we just want to honor this day in our bodies. Like I just want to turn my phone off and set a few markers to like rest my soul. Um, and so then it was like, let's just order takeout. You know what I mean? And like light a candle and like turn off a phone. And I'm not even joking. It's insane how just, if you turn off your phone and you light a candle, that's 95% of like that spirit energy. Like that's like that just, it's crazy how that changes it. That, that changes, you know, changes like, okay, this is different. This It's marking a moment really. Uh, this is different now. And turning the phone off is, is huge. And so, uh, yeah. So how do I help do it? So because of that, we got it. So that's how it started. Then it started getting into this place of where you, exactly what you said it started. Cause again, I think it's all the fun part about a weekly rhythm, by the way, is you get to practice it for the rest of your life. Like that's the, there's, there's no pressure on the biblical holy view of time because you get to constantly repeat it. Yeah. Right now, the Western view of time is like super linear beginning, middle, end. And so you always feel like you, you can, you, that's why we live with so many regrets. Cause it's like, we see you line as we see time as a line that we can never go backwards. Right. But the biblical view of time is more like a spiral where you're constantly going forward, but you're also kind of coming back at the same time. And so, um, so you, so there's like no pressure. Cause it's like, oh man, I just get to try again next week. I get to try again next week. Oh, that sucked. Oh, that was terrible. Oh, the kids didn't like that. Okay. Try again next week and just make small little iterations. But with that, the, the one that we found, I wouldn't say this is prescriptive is yeah, I tend to, I, I, I like cooking. I like leaning into some of these things. And Alyssa started getting to the place of like, ah, this is a lot for me to end the week with. So basically that's when we like take, team where she'll do a lot more stuff during the week. And then I'm kind of like on week from Friday all the way through the weekend, I'm cooking the dinners, I'm doing something fancy, I'm setting the table, I'm doing the dishes and I like it. It doesn't feel, you know, um, and I don't mind it. And so, because I hadn't been doing it the last couple of days, so I have that energy for that. But, um, yeah, so I think it's a really, just speaking to the dads listening, I think it's whether it's a Sabbath or whether it's whatever living with intentionality, there's so many windows for a father to take. One thing I'll encourage with is fathers should take more ownership over the home because it's actually like that creates such a special dynamic. If, if a dad is sudden, she's, she's, she's staring at me. I was like, I wanted to say, say it like, again yeah. for the guy in the back. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. Thanks. Jeff. Right? Thank well, you. Well, here's, there's a couple layers there, right? So the first layer is I think 
evangelicalism does have a bad stereotype. And actually, like, I think they teach this on accident or it kind of gives this feel that like the, the, the home is the, the woman's domain and like work is the, the dad's domain or something like that. Right. And we just don't ascribe to that. I think that's kind of toxic. I think it's kind of problematic. We believe that like the home is the family's domain you know, and work is the, and work is the family's domain. Now at certain seasons, you know, right now we both work, but at certain seasons, I was the only one technically working, but we considered that with language of like, Hey, the family is pushing out dad as an ambassador for this team, right? He's not to, to go steward resources to bring them back to the family. And so same thing with the home of like, if, if there's a subtle spirit of a home being overly delicate, overly fragile and overly maybe feminine. And, and then the dad having a subtle spirit of like, I don't super like it here, or I don't super have, or I want to retreat to my man cave, or I don't take a ton of ownership here. That tells a story to the kids. Like that's just clearly tells a story to the kids. But man, if a father and a mother in conjunction are saying, we want this place to be a place of flourishing, of life, of feasting, of friendship, of relationships, of abundance, etc., then they're going to work together to both put their strengths and assets into the pile and make it a really, really special place that then elevates it to a, like to a buzz where home starts to feel like very, very powerful. Mm, I love that so much, that partnership and, and learning new things, you know, like it might be a stretch for me to do certain things. Like Gabe's really great at party planning and I'm more kind of prep, food prep. But then all of a sudden it's like, what if we switched roles one weekend? And I really had to stretch myself to go like, I'm going to come up with the games, <laughs> you know, because our kids do put us in those boxes too. They've kind of like, like, you know, dad's the fun one and mom gets the the food on the table. And, and it's not spoken. It's just kind of we default to our strengths instead of going, how do we be curious and maybe learn a different thing that would help round out and show our kids too that there aren't these roles, right? There's not this roles like the mom's doing this and the dad's doing this. Like, how do we mix that up? Because I do do like a mean game of pickleball. I do love games, but sometimes the kids are like, you're so much more fun when you're not at home because at home, sometimes that just feels like a lot of responsibility of tending to the cleaning. And then Sabbath comes around and you're kind of just sitting there. But you act like I don't do anything around the home. No, you do. I'm not saying that you don't. (laughs) No, you do. You do. I'm just saying maybe in the cooking side. That's yeah, all. That's right. I'm not a chef like you, Jeff. And so many other guys that are our friends. Well, it's that intimidating. Are, they're loving yeah. the kitchen. And I'm like, well, that's, I don't know. I don't love the kitchen, but I can clean dishes. I can clean up. I can I know. You know, totally. do, do a lot it's of other just, things. I work and everyone it has is. different assets and strengths. It is. <laughs> and, well, let's finish on that because you, you said in, in your book, you talk about same enemy, same goal. So describe what you mean by that, that every family has the same enemy and what the goal is. Yeah. So that, that one was a full, one of those fun chapters of, of doing a lot of research and stuff. And, and sociologists and psychologists have come to it a bunch of different ways, but a lot of data to basically support that teams begin to erode any team, sports team, uh, you know, uh, businesses, uh, and, and families, um, or another way to say, I would actually say the inverse. They're, they're very strong. Teams are one of the things that makes them very strong is when they can unify around a shared enemy. And I think we just felt that, by the way, you know, a couple of weeks ago, September 11th, I think I was seeing people post about that, of the kind of that um, nostalgic, like, man, it was a horrible day 20 years ago, but it did something to like unify us, right? Now, I don't love, you know, we don't get into the politics of like what, <laughs> what enemy was named and if we agree with that, et cetera. But psychologically, it still did the same thing that like I'm talking about. Um, and so 
Uh, so, so I talk about that in the book of like, there's a ton of research and data to support that, but a lot of families have never, we're so consumer oriented and we have basically no mission. Like we've never talked about it. We've never processed it with our kids. We've never asked them their questions. We've never tried to steward all of our gifts and put it together to kind of become a family's team or a family superpower. Um, and so when we're consumer based and all we, and all it's about is just each of us getting you know, our heart's desires, then what's crazy is you then like, we begin to metaphorically become kind of cannibalistic. We devour one another. That's literally the phrase even that Paul uses in the New Testament is we devour one another. Um, and that's what a lot of families feel like. Like, like when, if you feel like, man, we devour each other, we're just bickering and complaining and fighting with each other and fighting over resources. That's probably a smoke signal that one, we're more exceptionally consumer based than we think. And two, when you don't have a shared enemy, you make yourself it, you make the team, you're on the enemy. Um, and so, yeah, so I just talk about, man, like, what is that? Find that for your family. And, and, and there's so many different layers you can go with it too, by the way, right? We can talk at the high level, spiritual level. You know what I mean? If like, there's, there's, there's real darkness out in the world, right? Like there's a clearly a war happening with the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. That's a, that's a meta 30,000 foot level one you can talk about consistently with your kids. Cause this is just a language play, constantly injecting language into the family that tells a story and gets it to kind of suck into their DNA. That's the meta one, the 30,000 foot level one, or you can get practical with like your mission. So I know a family who they would say like their enemy is like um, teen homelessness and poverty because they feel so called to serving that, th those people that to them, that's a huge enemy of theirs that like the dire circumstances that put teenagers in these, in these positions. Right. And so they've able to, they've been able to name the enemy. And then all of a sudden them plus the kids, the parents plus the kids radically unify now around that mission because they've named the enemy and they can now attack it. We just love how you've taken a fresh approach to give people a, a chance to just rethink how they think about family. I remember Rebecca and I, good friends 20 years ago, they, they, their last name were the Millers and they always called themselves the Miller team. And they talked about that to their family. And we didn't talk like that. That just wasn't language we used. Mm -hmm. And to see the way that you have taken back some of that language to just help people get a little more clear on like, what is the unique thing God's given us with our families? How essential that spaces for nurturing, for training, for discipling, for helping them get the perspective on the world and helping us have the right perspective on the world is just such a gift to all of us. So thank you for all that you and Alyssa do. Thank you for writing this book. And thank you for encouraging everybody in this community today. Mm, hey, appreciate you guys. And thank you guys for, I think you guys leading ahead because so much of this is that intentionality game. And you guys have led so strongly with that. And we've learned so much from you. So appreciate you guys. All right. And I'm going to go get in the kitchen now. Start cooking something <laughs> Thanks. up. Thanks for that. Right. Appreciate that. <laughs> Take care. I just love that conversation. I could have kept going and going. I know. He's so high energy. Love talking. Anytime <laughs> I talk to him, I'm motivated. I feel like there's so much more I need to learn. But this book has been really helpful. And I think the way that he approaches it, where you're thinking about your family as a team and everybody has a role to play. These are so important and practical ways that all of us can approach trying to lead our families in a way where it's not apathetic and it's not just reactive, but it's proactive. Yeah, that, that idea of taking back your family means you do have agency to affect change. We're not victims that are all kind of pointing fingers, but we're going, what do I need to do? What is my personal responsibility and how do I inject that into our home? So I hope you loved this. Grab the book. Make sure you go to RebeccaLyons.com slash EH retreat to join us in November. We're already close to being sold out. So please join us if you want to get those tickets soon, because once they're done, then we can start a wait list for next year. We only do this once a year with Kurt Thompson in November, and we would love, love, love to have you join us.